Well, I've asked our good friend Frank Buckley to come back on Church and Culture today because in our email correspondence, he has mentioned a very interesting concept of progressive conservatism. I'm going to talk about that, flesh that out. But let me remind you that he is a foundation professor at the Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. He's on all, been on the talk shows, newspapers, magazines. We've had him on for a number of his books. And the latest, which will be coming out in, a, in just a few weeks, is entitled Progressive Conservatism, How Republicans Will Become America's Natural Governing Party. Frank, thanks for coming back. And try to give us a thumbnail of what you mean, because... It almost sounds like an oxymoron to talk about progressive and conservatism. Deal, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be talking to you again. And, yeah, the title of my book was chosen to provoke a reaction just like that. Progressive and conservatism are two words that don't seem to go together very well. But the point I wanted to make is, uh, in fact, they do, and, and people who find it odd to couple them, have an imperfect understanding of progressivism and conservatism and then the Republican Party. But what I'm going to say, I think, will sound pretty familiar to a whole bunch of people, uh, to people uh, who are Catholics or social conservatives, and to people who uh, supported Trump in 2016, um, but, you know, but I grant you it sounds odd to say that a conservative can be a progressive. Uh, one reason for that is the, the label progressive has been taken over by the extreme people on the left. I guess they were unsatisfied with the term liberal. They wanted to signal they were more left-wing with that, and they took the term progressive. But... Um, there's nothing particularly progressive about them. They hearken back to the politics of race, the pre-modern politics of race against race, right? And, you know, and, you know, that predates not just the Enlightenment, it predates Christianity. It, it's, it's, you know, it's entirely inconsistent with, with everything we were brought up with. Uh, it's a reversion to the most primitive kind of, of ideology. Um, and it's also the case that the right wing, right wingers have, have, have a problem with the label progressive. For them, it goes back to you know, Theodore Roosevelt and uh, the turn of the, of the previous century and the growth of the regulatory state. The progressives at the time, you know, people like Theodore Roosevelt thought we needed a degree of regulation. And you know what? He was right. Uh, I mean, what we're talking about is a generally unregulated meatpacking industry described by Upton Sinclair in the jungle. I mean, we needed some regulation there. Um, the regulatory state has since then spun out of control, but, you know, don't blame that on, on Theodore Roosevelt. Um, I think the way to look at progressives back then is to reimagine American history not as North versus South, but as rather East versus West. North versus South, I mean, those those terms have played themselves out. I mean, it, at one time it was thought there was something to be learned about the ability to accept defeat nobly from the South. Well, that's no longer possible. Um, the South also taught us to recognize the grotesque, but again, there's so much of that around, we don't need any lessons in that. No, it's, you know, East versus West is another way of thinking of American history. It goes back to a guy called Frederick Jackson Turner, a great American historian, and he said, the history of America was played out in the frontier. And what did the frontier give us? I mean, what are the themes there? Well, you know, this is going to sound completely modern, right? But one great theme in the West was aristocracy versus the democratic state. So the West was associated with, uh, you know, resistance to entrenched hierarchies, 
you know, you made your way out west and you, you escaped the, the, the dead hand of those institutions. And so, you know, the Western strain in conservatism is associated with things like popular election of senators, the 17th Amendment, initiatives and referendum. Uh, Wyoming was the equality state. It granted votes to women way before anybody else did. So, you know, one strain of conservatism that gets forgotten is how democratic it was and anti-aristocratic. Okay. Um, the Westerners also thought the East was corrupt, and they were going to rise above that. Were they wrong? Yeah. Uh, there, 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 well, there's always a lot of corruption, but specifically anti-corruption, you know, the idea that there's a problem there, which is going to sound like drain the swamp to a lot of people, that's something very specific to conservatism. Okay, it doesn't describe the Democratic Party. You know, the, the problem with the GOP is it, it keeps giving away these issues. It, it gave up the word progressive. It gave up a concern about corruption. It, it gave the issue of corruption to left, which is crazy, because these are the guys who created the problem. And then, you know, the, the third element in the Western view of America is it was it was nationalistic and thought that the East was cosmopolitan, okay, which which word means essentially a cultural cringe towards Europe, right? So, you know, people out West thought that, you know, this is a great country, and we don't have to define ourselves as, you know, you know, uh, would-be Europeans, would-be Englishmen, anything like that. Okay, and, you know, Frontier, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner wrote about this in 1890. He had this, this essay about the, the American frontier. And what prompted it was the American demographer had reported that the frontier had closed. So the frontier, we don't really have a geographic frontier. And East versus West exists not in a really geographical sense today. I mean, the extreme West is the coastal West is ultra-liberal, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and so forth. But in between, you have, you know, the heartland, which still has those those values, those frontier values, right? And 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 so I'm describing something which is authentically American and authentically associated with the GOP and and which we permitted to be forgotten. I mean it, it's been it's been washed over. But it's it's you know, it's our, it's our it's the great history of the party. It it begins with Lincoln. I mean the party begins with Lincoln. And Lincoln begins as an anti-aristocratic fellow. I mean, he it's called the idea of America. And the idea of America is this is a country where whoever you are, wherever you come from, you can get ahead. And that was the core of Lincoln's beliefs. I mean, Lincoln obviously felt strongly about slavery, but if you had asked him to express himself, and he did, what was really at the core was not just that African Americans have the right to rise, but everybody does, you know, in, including poor whites from hard scrabble farms in Kentucky, as he did, right? So it's it's a you know America is a promise where of a country where everybody can get ahead, and that's especially relevant now because social mobility in America is declining. I mean, we look. You know, if you look at the economic evidence, we're about as aristocratic as England, right? The, you know, the real winners in terms of economic mobility are places like Denmark, you know, highly, highly mobile. And what I'm talking about in terms of mobility, I mean the following. I mean, how likely it is, is it that a kid from a poor family will make its way to the top or... How likely is it that a kid from the richest family very very likely yeah. yeah you know uh and we we don't do good in that respect you know we we've hampered mobility through things like 
open borders, which is the enemy of mobility. Um, you know, um, you know, countries like Denmark also have cheap universities and Medicare. So, you know, uh, you know, a mobility agenda cuts both right and left here. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, and, and this became really one of the themes of, of the Trump movement back in 2016. I mean, I, I was there. I made a presentation very early on to Jared Kushner and, and, you know, the idea of the idea of America's in decline became a major theme of the campaign. And Trump gave a speech on the subject, which the Washington Post reported was his best speech. Was that the one so, you wrote, Frank? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Deal? Now, look, can I, I want to ask just one question. I know, as you know, I was very much involved in, in both Bush campaigns. And I, I was very fond of his notion of compassionate conservatism. Could you critique that and contrast it with what you mean by progressive conservatism? Well, there's a fair bit of overlap, but we don't remember compassionate conservatism because it got forgotten after 9-11. And as we recall George W. Bush, we remember him for the wars. Right. in our attempt to export democracy. So, there, there, you know, there, there had been an opportunity to, you know, adopt something like that, uh, and it, it just didn't happen. You know, the, the interesting thing is that American presidents have always had this progressive conservative tinge. Nixon thought of himself as a progressive conservative, uh, Ike said, well, he, you could, he actually was. I mean, look at look. He opened up China and a lot of other things. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, the, 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 when I'm describing he could progressive conservatism, let me get clear. What I'm describing became known as the upper left quadrant in the famous diagram, where the upper left is economically middle of the road or left of center, but socially conservative. That's what progressive conservatism means. It's what the Trump message was. It's what most voters want. Um, and, you, you know, it's, it's what most GOP presidents have provided. I mean, Ike was consciously progressive. And he said the Republican Party must be known as progressive or it's sunk. I mean, again and again, he kept calling himself a, a progressive. He had an admirable record on things like civil rights. Um, what happened with the GOP is the thinking part of the party, you know, the, the think tanks and, and the little magazines bought into Goldwater conservatism, which, you know, defined itself solely in terms of maximizing liberty and free market economics. And, you know, and, and these are important themes, but it's not the only thing that's going on. Um, you know, it's it's um, that doesn't define Ike, for example. Um, it's certainly not compassionate conservatism, um, and that part of the party was wiped away in the 2012 election. I mean, the defeat of Mitt Romney was really the last gasp of that kind of Goldwater conservatism. And what remained was, I mean, of all the people who campaigned in 2016, Trump was the only guy who rejected all of that. And, you know, that helped him win the election. I mean, that, that, that was, that's... In other words, let's leave... Politics. In other words, let's leave National Review behind. Yeah, um, it's not terribly influential at this point in any event, but, you know... There, there was a, 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 there were a lot of ideas that were noble about expanding liberty. Um, when China adopted free markets over a thirty-year period, it, it took eight hundred and thirty-five million people out of extreme poverty, which is an expansion of wealth we've never seen before in the world. So, yeah, they work, and 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 we don't want to give them up. But, if the left wants to pose itself as the anti-capitalist party, fine, we give it to them, right? But it's more, it's, you know, 
politics is more than simply the expansion of liberty. Lincoln knew that, right? Lincoln knew it's not just about free markets. It was also about a transcontinental railway. It was also about the Homestead Act. Um, it, it was, um, you know, it was a variety of different things. Importantly, it was also about good education for kids. One of the reasons why we've become immobile is catering to its constituencies. You know, the left is willing to tolerate the shoddiest of schools, you know, um, which harm our kids and make us immobile. But then again, their big backer are, are the teachers' unions. So, that, you know, they're, they're not listening to America. They're just a creature of their, you know, uh, of their partisan support groups. So, you know, so aristocracy was a big theme in 2016. I, you know, if the word sounds familiar, think of it in terms of barriers to mobility, the idea of America, the idea that we all can get ahead. In 2014, when polled, Americans for the first time said their kids, they didn't think their kids would have it as well off as they did. And that's just, you know, so revolutionary in American politics. It signaled the need for a, a complete change, but with its tenure, you know, the, the GOP wasn't paying attention to that. So, you know, that's got to be part of our agenda, right? You know. And so, but but how? Go ahead. Given that liberals now have successfully captured the word progressive, about about five or six years ago, I noticed that the word liberal became one that left a bad taste in, in, in most people's mouths, at least publicly. And so they switched over to, they started calling themselves progressives, which is somehow more acceptable, more innocent. But given that they own that, are we talking about not using the word so much as using progressive principles? Well, yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it's all about, putting the right kinds of ideas into practice more than labels. If, if the label doesn't work, fine. But, you know, if, if I remember Ike fondly, I remember, as I say, a guy who said the party's got to be progressive if it's anything. Progressive is also a useful term in as much as it turns off some right-wingers in the party who need to be, you know, turned off. All right? What was progressive about Ike and made him a civil rights leader and, you know, a, a person supported by, you know, prominent black leaders at the time, like Adam Clayton, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, um, Reggie, uh, um, you know, as opposed to the Democrats at that particular time. You know, the, Re the Republican Party over a 60-year period became the party of, um, well, um, libertarians like the Koch brothers who liked open borders because it provided cheap labor for people, for the rich. It became the anti-civil rights party with people like Lee Atwater and Jesse Helms. It became the party of foreign policy idealism with Don Rumsfeld and, I guess, George W. Bush. And, and you know, Koch, Lee Atwater, and Don Rumsfeld you know, that's the Altamont Rock concert of the GOP. It's just a parade of horribles. So I'd like the party to get back to what it had been, which is a civil rights party, which which doesn't mean buying into the extremes of the Democratic Party, which are, are utterly opposed to the civil rights purity of a Martin Luther King or a Dwight Eisenhower. You know, it, it, it means essentially refusing to play the kind of quota games that we've been playing and refusing also to think of politics as just a matter of getting the right kind of constituencies behind you. You know, one of the great themes behind um, progressive conservatism is corruption. And, and let me describe what I think that means. There, there, you know, we, we've, the, the right has bought into 
an image of constitutional conservatism built around Madison and the Federalist Papers. And, and what was that like? Well, Madison said, basically, we're a country of factions. And, you know, that's kind of nasty, but it's okay because they're all going to bargain with one another and no group's going to rise to the top. The Democrats took that idea and they ran with it. They, they called it pluralism. And here's the idea. We're going to be the, the big tent party of core constituencies. We're going to have Catholics and Southern Baptists. Okay? And we're going to have Dixiecrats and we'll have African-Americans, right? And that's okay. It's all going to work out because everybody's going to have a seat at the bargaining table. And so they'll cut deals that are mutually profitable. And, you know, and again, it's an idea that goes back to James Madison. The only problem was it didn't work out, right? It permitted the Democrats to really, you know, become the anti-civil rights party for the longest possible time, right? Which um, everybody seems to forget, by the way. Pardon me? Which everybody seems to forget, by the way. Yeah, right. Um, so um, I, even the Democrats at some point realized this doesn't wash. And more recently, they've abandoned pluralism. They've abandoned the idea that everybody deserves a seat at the table, at the bargaining table. Right. But it still believes in pluralism, except now there are winners and losers. So there are, you know, these these kind of designated winners, uh, you know, the constituencies we're going to favor. And then we've got some constituencies, um, you know, the deplorables who don't get a seat at the table. OK, as opposed to that kind of pluralism, that's not what the Republican Party has traditionally been. The Republican Party harkened back to a different understanding of what good government involved that was called Republican virtue. And what Republican virtue meant for the people who led the revolution in 1776 was a sincere concern, a disinterested concern for the good of the country as a whole, the common good, right? And what was virtuous about it is it would not be interested. It's just the opposite of democratic pluralism. Democratic pluralism, which is utter cynicism, everybody is self-interested. You can't rise above it. The best you can do is just let them all bargain, right? And, you know, that's not the Republican Party. The Republican Party uh, has traditionally been a party which says, look, you know, let's go for the common good. And, and try to achieve it without yielding to self-interest. So, you know, we've, we've kind of, for the official Re Republican Party, which is the stupid party, has kind of forgotten that, and it's given away the idea, the issue of corruption to the Democrats, which is horrible. I mean, they're the corrupt party. Come on, right? Um, you know, and, and so there are things we could be doing, to cure corruption. One is curbing the influence of lobbyists. Another is ending the revolving door between Congress and K Street. I mean, these should be Republican themes. We've given the issue away to the left. It's pretty much the left that talks about this, you know, and not conservatives. Um, but it should be the Republican issue in this case. So, you know, you know, you know, against stupidity, the gods themselves are helpless, uh, and and so we gave the issue away. But it, it needs to be the issue of a uh, of a progressive conservative party. So I'm I'm describing themes that are are distinctly progressive. Um, you know, and and, and that you know are just lying there. You know, hanging from low the, the low lying fruit that can be easily picked up by the party. And that would be winning issues. You know, how, and, and how many how much of the leadership in the GOP, Frank, is is alive to the kinds of issues you're raising here? I don't know of too many. I mean they're they're very you what you can do is you can point to some people who get it right on one issue. 
but generally, you know, like you know, um, many of them have gotten it right on the subject of immigration, for example. The obvious thing to do on immigration is adopt a system geared towards making American citizens better off. Okay? And, you know, we know how to do this. Other countries have done it. Um, I plugged this in a book I wrote in 2016, and Trump uh, uh, signals his, his support for that you know, on, on Facebook. Um, you know, but when this was proposed in 2017, um, only 33 senators signed a board. So, you know, they're, they're just kind of confused about all of this. You know, they read the newspapers like everybody else. There's an extraordinary filter of disinformation that comes from the major media, and it filters through to our politicians. Um, I think the party needs to cut off Trump. Say that again? Say that again? The party needs to cut off Trump? I think the party needs to say goodbye to Donald Trump. I mean... I'm talking roughly about how to incorporate Trump ideas into the party. But Trump himself has to go, right? Well, hold on, hold on, Frank. We're going to take a short break, and I want to come yeah. back to this sure. very topic. So I'm talking to Frank Buckley about progressive conservatism, the future of the Republican Party, which is, after all, the pro-life party. And we'll be right back. I'm back with Professor Frank Buckley of the Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. And right at the end of the last half hour, Frank, you you made the provocative comment that the Republican Party needs to get rid of Trump. Now, the question that I want to pose is, first of all, why do you say that? And especially, why do you say that in the context of the kind of grassroots energy that Trump still elicits? Well, I don't mind Trump being around as a kind of exterminating angel, getting rid of uh, Congress people he, he he dislikes. But what he can't do is run again. I mean, that would be absolutely disastrous, and I think everybody recognizes that for several reasons. One reason is that as a president, let's admit it, the guy was a failure. Now, maybe that's an unfair comment because. He had, on the one hand, a right-wing Congress for two years that didn't like him. And for two years thereafter, he had a left-wing Congress that positively loathed him. But, you know, this was a guy who promised to be the greatest deal-maker going, and he conspicuously failed. So there's that problem, right? Secondly, you know, he surrounded himself with a bunch of really unsavory people. You know, the Steve Bannons and the like, and and people far, far worse than that. I mean, um, you know, opportunists uh, like Scaramucci. uh, I did not understand how, I mean, frankly, I'm with you. We started bringing in, like, people like Scaramucci. I mean, these guys are just thugs. Yeah. So he, he, he had a, you know... He wasn't able to staff his administration properly. He staffed it with a lot of lowlifes. You know, frankly, without getting into names, some of the people he did appoint were disappointments. Some of the people he appointed were, you know, first-rate people like Jim Mattis, but he just couldn't get along with them. Um, You know, so the administration was a failure in that respect. He also lost the 2020 election and became that which he used to mock, a loser, right? And then you have January, you know, so on top of all of that, you have January 6th, and we're still, you know, getting some idea of what happened on January 6th. I'm not a fan of the January 6th hearings on the Hill right now, which look like a kangaroo court by excluding Republicans who should be inquiring of the witnesses, what's really happening, cross-examining them, you have basically simply a bunch of Trump haters on it. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a show trial. 
of the worst kind, you know. And and but in spite of all of that, uh, you know, the evidence coming out, shoddy as in some respects as it is. But we you know, but we we've learned enough to be shocked at what happened on January sixth. I mean. Trump encouraging people to go after the vice president or certifying the election, that's deeply shameful, right? You know, to my mind, that excludes him as a person with a future in the party. Him, and I'm afraid, I'm afraid to say his family. So he's, he's, he's hurt the brand. On the other hand, he brought all these great ideas into the party, and the GOP is not going to win an election again if it abandons those principles. So the trick is, therefore, with while not running with Trump, yet adopting his ideas. And I think the idea behind all of that is called progressive conservatism. And the, uh, do you think that the... Uh oncoming candidates such as Governor DeSantis will carry on these kinds of progressive policies? I don't know enough about DeSantis, but he's a you know, he he's a guy with a, an incredible profile, you know, I mean clearly a, a leader. Um Governor Yunkin in Virginia is, is is another decent fellow, you know, who may well be a national leader. Um, I, I think the Republicans would be best advised to go for a successful governor as a candidate as opposed to somebody from the Senate, uh, because I think those guys really don't quite get it. Uh, and you, you also need somebody with experience in running a government, which a governor has and which Trump didn't have, and which Trump showed was so important to, as a skill. Um, um, yeah, somebody like, you know, you know, these kinds of people kind of get it, but in a way it's kind of easy to run against, you know, the crazy, the, the madness of the democratic party today. Um, you know, I'm, I'm describing a more permanent realignment in American politics behind the idea of uh, progressive conservatism. And I, and I, you know, the, the point I wanted to make in the book is that, the Republican Party, the history of the Republican Party is a cyclical history where you go from one progressive conservative to another with a, an interregnum that's right-wing. So Lincoln, who's basically a Whig with what we might call a left-of-center economic policy, is followed by you know, the Gilded Age politicians, uh, the Republican Party is going to be tinged with corruption at this point. And then you have somebody who calls himself a progressive, Theodore Roosevelt. Right? And, right. Um, you know, he, he his themes are, uh, in many respects, he was very much a social conservative in many respects. He was good on social, on, on civil rights, right, for his time. Um, but he's followed by... Um, you know, a Coolidge period of right-wing revivalism, which, you know, works well in the 1920s, but thereafter, the party fails to make its peace with the New Deal. People, you know, people have forgotten, you know, how popular the New Deal was at the time, to the extent that four progressive Republican senators voted for Roosevelt in 1932, including Robert LaFollette in, in, in Wisconsin. And of the brains trusters, Henry Wallace and Harold Ickes came to the administration as, as progressive Republicans. So, I mean, there was that element in, in the GOP all along, and, and in some respects the New Deal was a progressive conservative movement. I mean, it, it, it had some wacko ideas because nobody knew much about economics at the time. Uh, FDR saw himself as a crisis manager who was saving capitalism, 
And he had this most extraordinarily successful period of 1933, 34, 35, 36, uh, where the economy grew 10% per annum each year during that period. Right. And, and, you know, you know, the Republican Party, however, defined itself in opposition to all of that and, you know, would have lost probably in 1952, but for the fact that it nominated Ike, who was not going to take on the, the New Deal. I mean, we forget that Ronald Reagan said, I began as a Democrat supporting the, the New Deal. So, you know, the, the, the New Deal was genuinely popular. Uh, Eisenhower, you know, easily the most popular president in the 20th century, uh, wasn't going to go after, um, you know, the New Deal. In, in, indeed, his policies in many respects were left of center, and, and he was a, a great civil rights president, uh, you know, un, unlike the Democrats at the time. So, you know, you, you have these periods of uh, progressive conservatism with Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, and and Ike, and what follows is is kind of a return to pure right wing policies, and that was basically the story of National Review, and you know, and the Gold Wide Right movement that followed a, a sixty year period, where the Republican Party became got on the wrong side of civil liberties. Um, and it forgot its base, you know. I mean, you know, you know, free markets are important in terms of economic growth, but it, it, there's more going on than that. We, you know, we, we kept the GOP kept electing people, um, you know, to show some support for social issues such as abortion. But you know, the party turned out to be simply a right wing party. So, you know, what really turned it on was right-wing economic policies. The social conservatives, they consigned to the, the dustbin, right? But that wasn't Trump, right? And, and, you know, here we are. We've just ended Roe v. Wade. And to whom can we thank for that? No other, nobody other but, but Donald Trump. And by the way, Nominate. how do you feel that uh, Roe v. Wade will impact two things? the direction of the party and the upcoming elections and the presidential election? Well, it's hard to say. Trump's initial reaction is this is going to hurt the GOP. I think it's more confused than that. I could see his point, but it's more confused. I think what the end of Roe v. Wade will do more than anything is bring a degree of moral seriousness to individuals and to political parties. So, you know, it was it was easy enough for the pro-abortion crowd to hide the fact that they wanted abortion. They wanted late-term abortion. They wanted no restrictions, right? They yeah. could get away well, with yeah, that absolutely. because yeah, nobody 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 was really pushing them on that. They they just said basically that's the way the law is. Um, from the right. We on the right for a long time have said, you know, America has the most liberal abortion laws of just about anywhere. You know, you go to Europe and there are abortion laws and, you know, but they're much more restrictive. So, you know, so now the right has to say, gee, I mean, how do we react to that? Well, in Virginia, Governor Youngkin has said, uh, we propose to ban abortion after 17 weeks, I think it is. Right? So that's the sort of thing we're going to get from American conservatives. And, you know, I think that's going to be a winner, actually. So I, I guess I disagree with Trump that it's just terrible news for the Democrat, for the Republican Party. Uh, let's see what the Democrats have to say about that. I think, you know, if we know anything about them, they're driven by the most extreme voices in the party. So they're going to oppose any kind of restrictions on abortion. And um, I don't think that's going to do them any good. I mean, I, I, I think I think it's going to become clear in short that this is a more morally serious country than it was before Roe v. Wade was overruled. 
Right. Well, it it becomes more morally serious because we, a lot of people have been forced to think about the principle of killing innocent life who simply have tried to dismiss thinking about it. Exactly. Uh, And that'll have a change at the level of individual behavior. Uh, It's going to make men, teenage men, more concerned about these kinds of issues than they had to be in the past, right? I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm old enough I can remember shotgun marriages, which, which, by the way, turned out to be as long-lasting as ordinary non-shotgun marriages. So, they, you know, they, they, were, they, weren't, they weren't a bad thing. Um, so... There'll be that kind of seriousness brought to the issue at, at an individual level. At the level of the parties, you know, both parties are going to have to react to it. I think the Republicans have a better shot at doing it in a way which is going to be popular. So, um, my, you know, but, and, you know, some states will do an absolute ban. Some states like Virginia will ban for, you know, just after the first trimester, roughly. And that's, you know, in either case, that's going to be a good thing. But it's 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 going to it's going to pay itself locally, you know, at the state level. That's where the issue is going to be determined. It won't be it won't be at the federal level, so it, it won't affect. Anything that's going on in Washington, apart from a lot of screaming, I, th- I think I think we're going to get a better sense of rejecting extremists, particularly on the left. So, and I think that's going to be a good thing for, for America in general. I think st- stopping if we're no longer listening, if our conversation isn't dominated by the most extreme voices in our society, that'll be we'll be the winners. Well, it's, when I watch most of, uh, and in fact, I rarely watch them, but even when I see clips of mainstream television news, it seems to me like those extreme voices are, are right there and right in the face of the American people. Yep. Well, um, and that constrains policy options to some extent, but, you know, it works both ways. They'll influence people, but they'll also lose their influence because they're, they're, they'll be perceived to be so extreme. And of course, that's that's been going on for some time. So, you know, I, I think we're going to, I think the left is going to discover it's living in a different country than the country it thinks it's living in. And that might be a useful lesson for it. How are we going to, are we going to find that out in the upcoming November election? Well, we'll find it out mostly at the state level, you know, in, in state elections. Um, you know, people running for Congress will try to make a federal case out of it. The problem is there's no federal case to be made. You'll get some people saying, yeah, we want to pack, we want to stack the court. I mean, that's a loser of an issue for the American people, I believe. So I think the Democrats have a problem not listening to their wackos. They're just not able to do that easily. But they have to, right? Um, you know, almost the last Democrat who could say, I'm not listening to you crazies, was Bill Clinton. Right. Right? With the and, it, it's inter- and it's so interesting looking back because we were, we were not fans of Clinton, but now we miss him. That's not overstated. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I noticed that uh, Justice Breyer announced his retirement today. Yeah. Was that was that expected? That was expected. Uh, I guess it's uh, the the it'll take effect tomorrow, and tomorrow is the last day in which opinions are revealed. There'll be a few more coming down the pike, um, and he'll retire. I mean. Breyer was a sensible liberal who became who went native with the left. 
in D.C. Uh, but, you know, but, but in general, he, he was um, one of the last of the honest Democrats in town for most of his time. Most of the time he was here. Now, now he votes, has voted in lockstep with the left on every issue. So, but well, I want to I want to ask you a, a tangential question here. Why is it that so many justices that are supposedly moderate or conservative when they are confirmed, how, why are they seduced by the left? How does that happen? When you're surrounded, there's a natural instinct to be liked. And when you're in a town where everybody you know is liberal, if you voice conservative opinions, unless you're surrounded by people who, in your narrow corner who think like you, you're going to be made to feel uncomfortable. Right. So part of it has to do with the fact that people living in Washington are people living with, you know, with people who are very left of center relative to the rest of America and who, moreover, are reading the local press, you know, with the local TV, you know, the national TV, very left of center. So it's it's kind of like the Chinese water torture, you know, it's drip, drip, drip. Uh, and, and in a way, in the end, it's going to do something to you. The people who resist that, uh, I'm thinking of Sam Alito, by the way, at this point. The people who resist that have to be strongly principled. They have to be rooted in a faith which uh, is going to make them impervious to all of that. Alito is such a person. Uh, Antonin Scalia was such a person. You know... They weren't for turning, as Margaret Thatcher one, once put it. The, the lady's not for turning. So, well, is is Ken is a uh, justice? Uh, is the chief justice someone who has been seduced by that crowd, Roberts? Well, I don't think he was ever anything but um, a person who was. Strongly, uh, strong institutionalist. Uh, he, 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 he didn't come down. He didn't have a firm set of policies to begin with. He was a religious conservative, right, uh, and generally a small C conservative in a lot of respects. Um, I think he has a concern for himself and for the institution which is not shared by other members of the court, notably Alito, but but also, you know, people like that. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm well cushioned from all of that because I'm in a law school where most of of my colleagues are conservative. And, in fact, you know, I don't care much about what other people think if they really disagree with me. If I if I'm concerned, if 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 somebody disagrees with me, naturally you'll you'll think, well, gee, did I get that wrong? But if you can go back to first principles and say, no, I got that right to begin with, then you can blow it off. But um, yeah, there there aren't too many people who go back to first principles. Right. Now that Having that kind of reasoning seems to have been hasn't that kind of reasoning been kind of lost in law schools? Nah, hasn't that kind of, of what? Uh, for going back to first principles, that kind of reasoning has hasn't that been kind of lost in most law schools? Yeah, it it basically has to the extent that students at this point have problems with the First Amendment and free speech. Um, we're describing a cultural change of the kind I've never seen before. I mean, I've, I've been teaching for more years than I care to remember. But more recently, I've found the disconnect to be vast in the sense that you can't, for example, make a joke and expect anybody to smile or, hmm. or get it. It, it's just, it's, 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 it, and, and that's new. I didn't sense this four or five years back, but the crowd coming up right now seems unmoored 
from, from, from basic principles. God knows what they were raised on, right? But it, it, you, it generally wasn't um, the kind of principles with which I can have a sense of connection. Well, what what does that mean for the future of uh, our legal leadership and our legal reasoning? Well, I hope we're going to. I hope that's going to matter less than one might think. Um, it certainly is. Uh, I mean, the, the the reaction of students at our first-rate universities like Yale with respect to free speech issues is so deeply shocking to one that uh, you do worry in the end. Uh, Judge Silverman, a strong conservative on the D.C. Circuit, has suggested that his colleagues should think twice before they take a Yale Law student as one of their clerks on the basis that, you know, the whole lot of them are probably infected by this kind of thinking. I don't know. Um, you know, it's 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 going to be up to the bench itself to hold the line on issues, and and so we'll see how that's going. We will see if if the courts can do so. Now we've got one minute. It depends, uh, it depends uh, importantly on who who does the appointing. We've got one minute left. Give us some cause for hope, Frank. My, well, the cause for hope is that we're a great country and, and there are great people living in it. And in time, common sense will prevail and, you know, and the appeal to support the common good will be felt throughout our institutions. And that will begin with people who have a sound faith, a sound religious faith, such as your listeners. So... The responsibility is going to lie importantly with them to make their voices heard, and uh, and I think they will do so. Just when you think things can't get any worse, you know what? They don't. Right. And that's our prayer. And thank you, Frank Buckley, for being a guest once again on Church and Culture. I hope you'll come back soon. Thank you so much. Always great to talk to you, Dale. Okay. And to all your listening, I'll be back this day and this time next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.